If there's one thing knights of old valued, it was chivalry. But what is it? Where did it come from? And is it still relevant today? That's what we'll be talking about next with the one and only Charles Coulomb. We're real excited that you decided to join us for another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We are your hosts, Sam Guzman and John Heinen. If this is your first time watching, please click that subscribe button, click the bell. If you're listening to us on a podcast player and this is not your first time um, or you like it after your first time, you want to write us a review, please do so. It helps us out. Um, we are met and uh, getting to meet today with Charles. We're so excited that he's here. I've been a longtime fan. If you don't know who he is, shame on you, but he is an American author, historian, and lecturer. He has appeared on Fox, ABC, BBC, National Catholic Register, Catholic Herald, and dozens and dozens of other locations. If you just Google him, you're going to see the full rap sheet. He is the author of 15 books, including Vicars of Christ, A History of the Popes, Blessed Emperor Charles, The Legacy of a Holy Monarch, and A Catholic Quest for the Holy Grail. I'll put this in the show notes, but you can find him regularly on Tumblr House, both on their website and over on their YouTube channel, coming out weekly with a great show called Off the Menu. I strongly encourage you to listen to it. Charles, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're excited. So we're talking about chivalry, and I'll start with the questions. Where do we begin when talking about chivalry? What should we understand both at its essence or, you know, at its development uh, from the beginning? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I, uh, I always like to start with things historically, just the way it is. Uh, and basically, in a nutshell, chivalry was the militant spirit, if you will, of the Germanic tribes who invaded the uh, Roman Empire tamed by the church, mm. Christianized, and put to the defense of God, the church, the weak. Um, it became a code of behavior, a code of honor, and really uh, a means of sort of lay active spirituality. Uh, it has been to some degree connected with noble birth, but that's not always been the case. Uh, the reason why that connection came was because it was the nobility who did the fighting. Um, the old, the uh, in medieval society, there was the old saying: uh, "The priests bless us, the peasants feed us, the nobles uh, defend us," mm. and that was the that was the law of the three estates. And of course, uh, although in the in the very beginning of chivalry. It was not necessarily connected to noble birth. The more that uh, fighting became the strict province of the nobility, the more that became the case. Now, within that context, it developed a kind of devotion, a kind of piety, very specific to it. And although uh, the advent of gunpowder and things like that ended the uh, uh, military role of knights. It did not end chivalry per se. And it has a number of different um, 
remaining bits and pieces, some of which are not germane to most people and some of which definitely are. Mm. Uh, from it, of course, we still have some of the orders of knighthood, both the religious orders of knighthood, like the Order of Malta, uh, the uh, uh, Order of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, the uh, Teutonic Order in, uh, in Austria and Germany, and the quasi-revived order based in Italy. And uh, a lot of groups that call themselves Templars, but mm -hmm. there's only one that the church really acknowledges and not as a descendant of the original order. They just live by the rule of the original order, but they don't claim to descend from them as a lot of the, uh, yeah. well, I don't like the word phony. Growing mm -hmm. up in Los Angeles, you know, phony is such a, a terrible thing to say. Mm -hmm. uh, but suffice to say, a lot of these shall we say alternative orders of uh, quote unquote Templars. Um, they're definitely not derived from them. The only the only orders of Templar that have real descent, ah, real descent from the Templars, are the Portuguese Order of Christ and the uh, uh, Spanish Order of Montesa, uh, because in both cases that are going in Portugal, the local kings said the Templars here are great, and they started, they took them out of the the wreck of the order and created their own with them. Uh, which brings us to the second kind of knighthood that people are familiar with, and those are the royal orders of knighthood. The Garter, the Golden Fleece, uh, the Saint-Michel de Saint-Esprit in France, uh, the, the four orders in Spain, Montesa, Aragon, uh, sorry, Santiago, Calatrava, Alcantara, and then the, uh, there are three orders like that in Portugal. Um, and then there's the Constantinian order of the two Sicilies, and there are various other uh, royal knighthoods that are still given out by various heirs to various thrones. Or, in the case of uh, Spain, the Netherlands, Belgium, Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, and Great Britain, orders of knighthood given out by reigning uh, Christian monarchs. Um, those are all expressions of chivalry. There are hereditary knighthoods. Uh, in England, the so-called baronets. Uh, so you'll be Sir John Smith, Baronet. Well, it's really an hereditary knighthood. But those are more common uh, on the continent amongst the Germans and the Italians. That's all on one side. There are uh, orders in the church, uh, like the uh, the Knights of the, uh, not the, there's the Knights of the Immaculata, but there's another whose name escapes me, that it, where they actually are knighted by a bishop using the pontificale. Uh, and that, of course, is how you become a knight, is the accolade. That's what brings you into the into, into knighthood. And obviously, all knights were not members of orders any more than all priests were members of orders. Uh, but you did have to go through the ceremony of the accolade to become a knight. Hmm. Uh, now, in the beginning, this could be done by a king, any bishop. That's why it's in the pontificale or any other knight. But as time went on, uh, the bishops, and particularly the kings, began to centralize this kind of power in their own sure. hands, which is why, incidentally, in so many of the crown jewels of Europe, uh, their spurs were part of the crown jewels to show that the king was the font of chivalry. And also, at his coronation, he would knight a certain number of people. And that was the, the last Catholic coronation in Europe, other than the Pope, 
was um, Emperor Carl, and he knighted Knights of the Golden Spurs, they were called at his coronation in Budapest. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was that side of things, what you might call the external side of it, still continues. There are also groups that call themselves Knights, like the Knights of Columbus, the Knights of Peter Claver, both of which I, uh, I belong. Um, and in other Catholic countries, you've got the Knights of St. Columba, the Knights of the Southern Cross, the Knights of De Gama, depending on where you're at. Uh, these societies are not knights per se, but they certainly value the chivalric ideal. Uh, and also it could be said that in most, most Western armies, uh, the officer corps to a greater or lesser degree still in some vague way sees the chivalric virtues as the military virtues. Mm. Uh, Beyond that, of course, uh, any group that militates in favor of the church could be said to partake of chivalry to a greater or lesser degree. Um, so that's all on one side. The other side, chivalry is a method of spirituality in a real sense, a method of uniting external uh struggle for the faith with internal devotion mm -hmm. and specifically to things like the the cross and the passion the precious blood laterally the sacred heart um, because just as Maundy Thursday and the, uh, the Christ uniting of the uh, kingship of Israel the Davidic kingship with the communio of the church was seen as the birth of Catholic monarchy Good Friday and the death on the cross was seen as the birth of chivalry. And that's why in every order of knights, uh, the feast of the Holy Cross are very, very important. Uh, because if you were to reduce chivalry to one sentence, it is greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. Uh, it's, it's interesting that in the famous uh, version of Parsifal by Wolfram von Eschenbach, Parsifal, after realizing what terrible things he's done, he goes a bit crazy and runs off into the woods. Um, but he starts fighting these knights madly because he's completely undone. And so one of them defeats him and says, you know, we told you we're not going to fight today. You're not, what are you, Nazis? He says, well, why wouldn't you? It's Good Friday. Mm -hmm. Knights do not fight on Good Friday. Yeah. So... And then, of course, also the uh, the uh, veneration of the Blessed Virgin was tightly connected to the knight's regard for women. Yeah. And a great deal, even even our phrase, Our Lady, comes from knightly devotion. Um, the famous story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Yes. Uh, the interior, he has a, a, the a picture of the Virgin painted on the interior of a shield. Shield. Uh, so to strengthen him during combat. Well, this, you know, this wasn't just made up stuff. Knights actually did that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean that they were all wonderful by any stretch right. of the imagination. Uh, any more than, uh, I don't care what element of society they are, except perhaps uh, elderly Catholic writers. <laughs> 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 Other than them, every element of society is filled with yeah. imperfection and terrible people. 
Uh, and if you think you're going to find perfection this side of the grave, that is the quest no knight no. would ever have taken. <laughs> yeah. No, they they sure. might have got after the grail, but <laughs> perfection. No. Uh, I mean, yeah, young Catholic podcasters have a lot going for them too. But, um, <laughs> but no, I, I, uh, I've been told I, this up and coming. Uh, <laughs> my uh, no, I, my interlocutor, Vinny Franchini, tells me that young Catholic podcasters are the best. I, I don't know. that's right. <laughs> yes. So um, I want to go back to something that you talked about uh, a, a minute ago about kind of the primitive roots of chivalry. Uh, and one thing that kind of like really reinforced that for me was, I mean, there's all kinds of distorted images of kind of the middle ages. Um, some of them extremely negative. Um, some of them overly idealistic. Um, but I, I think one of the things that kind of put it in, in contrast for me, some of the things you're talking about is reading like, um, Kristen Lovren's daughter um, and how was she like early on in the book she's like taking a journey by herself and she's like walking this lonely country road and like some guy comes along and essentially like wants to molest her essentially and and um, she's she's rescued before that can happen but but just showing like the vulnerability of like women back then how a woman alone on a country road was a very dangerous position to be in. It's yeah. Now um, it's uh, yeah. on a city street. That's right. Yeah, because right. they're so much better now. Or the yeah. first date. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in New Haven. Yeah. But yeah, um, but I mean, it's just like you could see where this protective instinct came from. But on the other hand, it was very contrary to kind of the. Um, like you were talking about, like Teutonic warriors and things. I mean, how did how did how did that come about? I mean, how did they how did this protective spirit towards women come about? Because historically, uh, that hasn't always been the case in human history. Well, it hasn't, um, and I and I really have only two words for you: Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. The Church hammered it into the brains of her new converts that every woman, to a greater or lesser degree, reflects the Blessed Virgin. And both virginity and motherhood are thereby sacred and to be protected, especially because they're weak. Um, now, mind you, that wouldn't have been true of some of the nuns I had, but still. Uh, it, the, the, the whole idea of protecting the weak and womanhood in the front of that is very much, as I say, a reflection of devotion to the Virgin, which was both the, the origins of chivalry and its course was so tied up with it. It, it um, These strands that worked their way through the history of chivalry uh, eventually became indissoluble. I mean, similarly, uh, the stories of the Holy Grail uh, became popular just as on the one hand the Crusades were failing, and on the other hand, the uh, what I like to call the uh, Eucharistic Revolution of the 12th century was taking place. Uh, in that, the uh, philosophers at the time were exploring the the implications of the real presence, 
and came up with the word. It was Hildebert of Lavardin who did this, but he came up with the word transubstantiation. Well, that brought a lot of things to the fore. Uh, not least, of course, at the same time, shortly, shortly after that, you had uh, the revelations of uh, St. Juliano of Cornillon, which gave us the Corpus Christi feast. So all of these things sort of found an outlet in the writing of the Grail stories. Uh, the failure of the Crusades was a big crisis for chivalry. Because if God is on our side, if we're the warriors of Christ, how can we be losing? Well, there's a twofold answer to that. One reason may be your sins, which uh, if you're human, you're not without. Uh, but the other is that defeat in this world is sometimes victory in the next. And that victory is what counts. Everything we're struggling to do now may or may not eventuate. But it's the the backdrop against which we have to work out our salvation. And some of the things we do in that struggle may may be a part of our working out our salvation, fear and trembling. But it doesn't mean that it's going to work out the way we want it to. Yeah. If that makes sense. We have to we have to work as hard as we possibly can to succeed. But if we don't, at the end of the day, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is if it conduces to our salvation and that of others. And that, that of course, um, has been seen as very unrealistic and pie in the sky by many this worldly uh, commentators, all of whom I've noticed, uh, despite being this worldly, still died. Uh, whether they were prepared for that death and whether their eternity was pleasant, I don't know. What I can say is that it's much less likely to be if you don't even think about it. If you dwell right. completely in the, you know, let's not worry about that pie in the sky stuff. Let's just get the job done. Well, even if you succeed, how long is your success going to be? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. We're still going to die. Yeah. Believe me, I'm 60 years old. My classmates flopping around right and left to me. By the time you get to be my age, it's like a game of 10 little Indians. You know, that one goes, that one goes, that one goes. And one day. <laughs> uh, it's uh, ever present. Um, well, uh, now we can begin your cause for canonization, though. So. Um, well, that's right. That's right. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't bet on my own. But uh, there are a lot of other people around. I might bet on. I mean, yeah. So, looking at chivalry, I have the book that you wrote the forward to by uh, Leon Gautier, uh, Chivalry, and right. And I know that he tried or he defined right in those Ten Commandments of of chivalry. But just what you've been bringing up, it's really kind of going in its essence, the church, right? That chivalry was, um, would you say, knighthood, would you say, was, was reigned in and then chivalry came out in its essence, uh, you know, with allegiance to the church. The first commandment for anybody who doesn't know is thou shalt believe all that the church teaches and thou shalt observe all its directions. So I'd love to hear from you if that is a safe um, or accurate um, presentation of of chivalry, you know, kind of 
at its core and its meaning, um, or if it's um, something deeper or maybe in a totally different direction? Well, actually, uh, what you've read there is already pretty deep. Yeah. Uh, believe all that the church teaches and follow directions. That's a lot. How many of us, uh, you'd be amazed how many Catholics don't know there are four creeds. Mm-hmm. Now, that by itself is kind of a stunning. And whenever I say that in front of a large audience, inevitably I'll get a certain number of blank faces. Of course, then there'll be some wise guys who are snickering because they've seen my podcast. <laughs> Sorry, was that a plug? But uh, <laughs> hey, the truth is that uh, even those of us who consider ourselves informed Catholics very often don't know nearly what we should. And the truth of the matter is, the more you know about the faith, the more you want to know, or you should want to know, and the more you realize you don't know. So that's, that's, that's a good thing, not a bad thing, but to know as much of the faith as we possibly can, her dogmas, her liturgy, her history, that should be the endless quest of, of all of us. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing with the, uh, the Knights of the Middle Ages is that very often, like most of the nobility, they were illiterate. It was very rare that they became scholars, but they didn't know their faith. One of the things uh, you'll notice about uh, the medievals is that they loved lists, not just the Ten Commandments, you know, the gifts of the Holy Ghost, uh, the precepts of the church. They, 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 they loved lists, the 14 holy helpers, uh, the, the uh, uh, nine worthies, these the, the uh, what is it, seven defenders to Christendom. I mean, they, they loved lists. Why? Because even though they were illiterate, they weren't stupid. Yeah. So they memorized lots and lots and lots of this stuff. One of the things I like to point out to people is that the Iliad and the Odyssey were oral for a good four or five hundred years before they were written down. And having been written down, in the 19th century, a man named Heinrich Schliemann, when all of educated uh, opinion in Europe believed that Troy was a myth that had never existed, uh, old Schliemann used the Iliad to find Troy. Wow. Despite it having been purely oral yeah. for four or five hundred years. So uh, I, I, you know, we, we have a big problem in our time in equating intelligence with literacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, actually one of the great developments in our time is that we managed to remain uh, ignorant while be acquiring illiteracy. But we still love lists. So. Yeah. <laughs> we don't even have lists. We just, <laughs> yeah. you see, we, we don't remember anything on the one hand. We don't yeah. know anything on the other. And, and we don't read, oh, never mind. <laughs> Stop. Be good. Don't be insulting. That's my <laughs> job. Never mind. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, what I meant to say is, uh, no, but seriously, uh, so that, but one reason why we have all these lists is because our medieval ancestors loved them. They also loved artwork very much because again, not being literate, they used art and they could go into a church and read it the way you and I read a newspaper. But I mean, when you consider that today our our uh, uh, brightest and best have to take all sorts of university courses to decipher the symbolism 
the medieval artists use, and even then often get it wrong. Whereas, you know, your 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 illiterate knight or your literate peasant could go into a church or a cathedral or an abbey and look, and everything was right there for him. And they also loved, um, as a result, plays, miracle plays, mystery plays, things like that, uh, in which the various uh, truths of the faith or the morals the church taught or stories from the lives of the saints and the scriptures were reenacted. They really loved that. Um, we, it was a very different way of looking at life, of thinking. I won't say it was better or worse, but it was certainly very different. And to try to understand them, we have to bear that in mind. They took things literally that we don't. I mean, to give you an example, and this works into the question of chivalry. Yeah. Um, governance in the Middle Ages was barely existent in our way of thinking. I mean, there was no central regime that could put masks on you and tuck you away in your home for months on end. Uh, it just it wasn't there. There was no internal revenue. There was no secret police because just there weren't the means. You know, it took the rise in technology and civilization and our, our great intelligence to create all that stuff. Um, but there was the notion that all of the king's subjects had to enforce the king's peace, and especially the knights. Now, what was the king's peace? It was justice. It was people not being robbed. It was Kristen Lavern's daughter not being uh, molested on the road. So what would happen? Um, someone plays the uh, plays the highwayman on the king's highway, and the local sheriff or whatever they call the local official uh, set out the hue and cry and call the locals or perhaps ask the local lord or knight to come out. This was the, uh, the uh, posse comitatus, the power of the county. And they'd go out and they'd get the highwaymen give him a fair trial to string him up. And the king's peace was restored. Now, what did the king have to do with that? Not much. But it was real to them. And the funny thing is, because our legal system originated back in those days, it still has all sorts of bits and pieces that refer to it, like being bound over to keep the peace. It's the king's peace. Uh, the justice of the peace the king's peace. It's all, it refers back to that. And there are touches of chivalry in that too. Um, the sheriff, it was the Shire Reeve, the king's man. Uh, the the coroner is the crown's, the crown official coroner. Mm. All of that, um, all of that comes it all comes the same uh, the same thing. Yeah. So I I would say I would say it's important to remember that uh, although they looked at things very differently, their reality was just as real to them as ours is to us. Yeah. Of course, they might have found ours rather savage and disgusting. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Not that they'd be right, of course. We're alive and they're not, so we must know better. 
Oh, and well, that actually brings me to my next question, um, which is this spirit of chivalry you're talking about is very beautiful. And there are so many traditions and so much history around it. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. And like you said, in some, in some places, there's still knights. There's still some of these orders live on. Yep. But um, for uh, 21st century men who are intrigued by this, captivated by it, um, fascinated by it, which I think I know there's a lot of men out there. I mean, even sometimes you look on social media and you see these guys or their profile pictures, some knight with a massive sword or something like that. And of course, the guy's probably never owned a sword in his life. But there's something captivating about that image that they are drawn to, even if they can't put their finger on it. So yeah. how how can we live this chivalrous spirit in the 21st century without necessarily being a knight, without, you know, strapping a sword to our side or, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, we, not all of us can be Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, mm-hmm. um, even though that might be cool uh, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, or not. But 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 um, how can we live that this spirit today in a way that is true to its essence, um, but that may you know, lack some of the external trappings of, of traditional knighthood. Well, obviously, we should all get jobs at the Renaissance Fair. But uh, <laughs> no, I do the, love the uh, Renaissance Fair. Yeah, so. I can play I trumpet, so. Uh. <laughs> I, I do, too. I love the Renaissance Fair. I, I, I was in it just before I came over to Austria. It was great fun. But no, not the Renaissance Fair as for what you want to do. Uh, well, the first thing is to put the faith at the center of our lives. I mean, the Ten Commandments of Chivalry, uh, which uh, you referred to, they can be applied to our everyday lives. We can be loyal to those to whom loyalty is due. Uh, We we can be self-sacrificing. We can be willing to put the good of the whole above our selfish desires. We can do that. We can cultivate a um, an attitude of service. Uh, I'm going to give you an example. Everything the knight did, and this included his training as a soldier, his you know, his armoring, his expertise, all that, was all intended to defend the weak, to protect what was worth protecting. We can do that in our own lives. Uh, you can get active, of course, in pro-life stuff. I can't think of anything weaker than the babies we're murdering. Uh, you know, their Operation Rescue was a very chivalric bunch, to be sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are all sorts of things in your own uh, in your own part of the world, your own bailiwick, that you could look after. Uh, whether it be the Knights of Columbus, the Knights of Peter Claver, who all do interesting and useful stuff, or depending on what your town is like, uh, anything from uh, anything from volunteering at the local historic house museum to uh, try to work to preserve the local waterfall, that could be useful. That could be a better thing than staying home and watching TV. Hmm. 
especially if you use it as a means of evangelization, of spreading the faith of the Great Crusade. Why do you do this, your friends might ask? Well, because as a, as a uh, believing Catholic, I have an obligation to help make my community a bit better. What? And there too, uh, you can show the generosity that uh, Knights was supposed to show. And that generosity, that largesse, uh, means not being mean-spirited, not being cheap or cheesy. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to, say, to spend all your money. That's not my point. Mm -hmm. But, for instance, you should be quite ready, especially if you're commemorating either a feast of the church or something like a baptism or a confirmation or whatever, to entertain and to invite non-Catholics to set entertainment. You know, if your kid's having a first communion and you've got non-Catholic friends, what better way to evangelize than to throw a party commemorating it and inviting them all? Because yeah. they'll want to know what the whole thing's about, and you'll have to tell them. You'll have to explain the Eucharist to them. Otherwise, it won't make sense that you're throwing this big party. They'll have to know it's important to you. And that is another thing you saw with the way the Knights lived, was that they kept the church here. One of the things, if you, if you read the stories of King Arthur and Charlemagne and all those guys, they're always saying things like, he kept, uh, he kept Pentecost at Carolion on us. Well, the phrase, he kept Pentecost. What does that mean? It means he made a big feast out of it. It meant masses, it meant banquets, it meant dances and plays and all, all the stuff they liked. So you can do the same thing. Nothing wrong with having a Pentecost party. Uh, nothing wrong at all. Nothing wrong for the same, by the same token. Uh, try to avoid entertaining during Advent and try to entertain between Christmas and the Epiphany. Mm -hmm. You know, quite apart from everything else, there's been a growth of what they call the Boards of the uh, Boar's Head uh, festivals yeah. in the United States. And of course, that's kind of a riff on the medieval Boar's Head festival. If you know of such a thing, especially if it's a Catholic church putting it on, go or get together with a bunch of friends and do something similar yourself. There's recommendations for all this stuff on the internet. It's not like you can't find it if you don't try. Yeah. But uh, so, the, the, again, a good part of it is looking at life, the way you look at life, as a chance to serve God. And just as the knights would go out uh, seeking other knights to joust with, you too could look for opportunities to spread the faith in your own sphere. Remember that every person you interest in the faith, however, seemingly, in whatever minor fashion, seemingly, that's a very tiny victory. Yeah. So that's how you can do it. And of course, you know, uh, the devotional side is, is obvious. Uh, the rosary is as chivalric as anything I know of. And the same for Eucharistic adoration. Every uh, every perpetual adoration chapel is a grail chapel. And for that matter, not to steal another line from the old stories, but uh, 
The confessional is Chapel Perilous, where you have to go and face yourself. Look at it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I, I, I'm very appreciative. I couldn't agree more. And I, I know our listeners uh, appreciate that as well, because, you know, we hear that chivalry is dead or, you know, we feel like it's it's something like when you think of chivalry, you think of King Arthur or something like that. And, and that's not today, but it really is um, an attitude or it really is a, um, a disposition and a uh, that we can all take on, you know, ourselves. Well, and and there's how how many of us have heard the faith attacked? in a social or business sphere and remain silent. Yeah. Now, the spirit of chivalry would require us to stay, uh, hold on, hold on here. There are two ways we can look at this. We can do it simple, in which case I'm offended. And since I'm offended, you've got to shut up. Yeah. Or I can explain the truth of it to you. That's the more complex way. Mm-hmm. Which would you prefer? Now, mind you, uh, 999 times out of a thousand, I'm willing to bet they'll just shut up and not want to go any further. But even that simple thing of saying I'm offended, everyone's offended now. Everybody, oh, it's so awful. I can't stand it. Even though I look in the mirror, I'm offended. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, everyone's such a weenie today. <laughs> over nothing. Mm-hmm. So if everyone's going to be weenies over nothing, fine. How about being a weenie over something? Mm-hmm. Ah, a chivalrous <laughs> weenie. That's kind of scary. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. It reminds me. Sometimes the, the weird overcomes me. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the I, I remember an anecdote, and I don't know if it's true, but it's like, like uh, San Ignacio Loyola. You know, when he was first a convert, he was riding his donkey and some guy passed him and they were talking in, in the course of the conversation uh the other the other gentleman insulted the blessed virgin mary and saint ignatius was so angry uh that he was going to go kill the fellow for insulting the blessed virgin mary and um fortunately he heard a message from heaven that asked him to desist uh before he did that but uh he, he was that passionately committed to defending our blessed mother's honor. He, he was. And, uh, you know, you, you, you do, of course, have to live in the, in the times you live in. And today, uh, there's nothing people respond to more than guilt. Mm. You know, I say, so you're anti-Catholic. I get it. You hate my people. I understand. Well, no, I, I, I didn't mean it. No, no, yes, you did. I took it the way you meant it. Okay? Can we not talk about this anymore? Isn't it funny how all modern discourse sounds like a bad girlfriend? <laughs> you ever wonder about that? I have not. No, no, I, I will now, though. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's like the whole world is saying, does this dress make me look fat? Yes, it does. Yes. It makes you look like a big tub. How about that? <laughs> Take no offense. Like she look like a big round <laughs> globe in space. That's what it does. <laughs> Too funny. But seriously, yeah, I, I, uh, I have to, I have to say that, uh, however, you know, you have to choose these things according to the circumstances and according to your own disposition. You can't be what you're not. Um, 
but I mean, I, I remember um, years ago, I did a, uh, for a secular paper, I did a um, series of articles, uh, an article profiling a series of, shall we say, minority religions in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. And one of them, just for fun, was a traditionalist Catholic priest. Uh, so, you know, I had a Taoist, a Unitarian, a Theosophist, uh, I mean, all, all this good stuff. And so I put this in as well. They cut half of it. Uh, of the priest, I mean. Yeah. And I said, why did you do that? Well, it was just catechism. I exploded. I said, it was all just catechism, according to uh, whatever it is they happen to believe. I could have written the whole bloody article myself. I didn't even need to talk to those people. It's all catechism. You know why you did it? Bearing in mind that he was Jewish. It's because you're anti-Semitic toward Catholics. That's why. Mm. Now, of course, that's an insane thing to say. But it, boy, did it make my life easier from that point on. Yeah. So it, you've got to figure out what works in your own specific place and time. Um, I... I you know, I, on another occasion, I was being interviewed on the local PBS affiliate in Los Angeles about the um, uh, about the uh, pedo scandal, which was a big deal in LA. Now, as it so happened, my interviewer had been married four times. Hmm. So keep that in mind. So at one point, he asked me the money question or this sort of stuff. Don't you think it's celibacy that leads to all this? And I said, well, just given that more, most child molesters actually are married men, you would have more of an argument against marriage there. No, that's not it. I said, the problem is that it's very difficult for we moderns, who are very weak, really, as, as a people, to keep lifelong vows. The truth is that the failure of priests to keep their vows of celibacy is closely related to the divorce rate and the inability of so many to keep their marriage vows. Know what I mean, Jess? Hmm. You wanted okay. to shift to another topic. I wanted to stay there, though, because I thought it was worth exploring. Yeah, yeah. As I say, you've got to keep your you've got to keep your eye on the ball. And again, it's a skill. The knights had to be skilled in, in sword fighting. We have to be skilled in in, in debate in yeah. parrying and thrusting, but always, always with the intention, the hope that they will somehow come to the truth. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, thank you. A, a bit of a, a gear shift. And actually, you know, one of the things that a listener uh, requested is to hear from you um, stories that all of us as men or as gentlemen should read and should know um, to better understand knighthood, better understand chivalry. And I know that very often it's, you know, it's limited to, you know, the death of Arthur or, you know, the once and future king or something like that. But it's it's far more um, broad than that, right? And you have the Song of Roland and we've got these epic poems. Uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight that has a new movie out, which I can only assume is um uh <laughs> poorly <laughs> poorly done but uh, uh to, to be I determined um, i'm sure it's wonderful 
<laughs> exactly. So, but to hear from you, the, uh, uh, you know, categories of stories and, and just as, as many stories as you feel like we as gentlemen should um, pick up and, and read and, and, you know, the little reasons why would be, I just greatly appreciate hearing that. Well, sure. Uh, first and foremost, I would recommend you pick up a book called Bullfinch's Mythology. Uh, it's both in print and it's online. It's a very old book. Uh, the first half has to do with the stories of Greek and Norse uh, myths, which are very important undergirding of our culture. If you don't know them, there's a lot you don't know. Uh, you can't read the Iliad and the Odyssey without knowing the basics of Greek myth, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so the other half, though, is called The Age of Chivalry. And it has in uh, a short and uh, fairly easily eatable, edible, fair, mentally edible uh, context, uh, the stories of Arthur and Charlemagne and various other figures uh, that are worth knowing. Uh, I would definitely read a, um, a modern version of uh, The Mort by um, Sir... Uh, Oh gosh, I, I can't believe I've gone blank. It's Thomas it's famous. Um, Mallory. Or are you talking about the Thomas the, Mallory? The, yes, yeah, so Thomas, Thomas Mallory. Mallory. Uh, definitely read Mallory's um, or Mallory's uh, Uh Sir Gawain of the Green Knight you referred to. I, I recommend Tolkien's translation, but really anything will do. Um, the if you could find. And they have them, English editions of uh, Chrétien de Troyes' uh, Percival and uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach's Parsifal. They have them in English. Penguin has a lot of these. Yeah. Um, the Quest of the Holy Grail, uh, from what, also called the Lancelot Grail, Penguin has. These are all worth reading. Uh, you should read the stories of uh, Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. Now, this might be surprising because people think, well, gee, Robin Hood wasn't a knight and he, uh, he was, you know, a democratic figure, like, like the Republican, sort of. Uh, no. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Yeah. What he was was someone who remained loyal to the true king when everything else, everyone around him, everything around him defected. That's a very important lesson. Mm. Uh, the king, if he lived, was in Palestine. Uh, his brother had usurped the throne and put the sheriff of Nottingham in charge. And they were oppressing the king's subjects and breaking the king's law and violating the king's peace. Very important object lessons for all of us. I uh, have to remind people that he didn't go out to Sherwood Forest because he was a green. He went out there because it was refuge. Yeah. So I recommend that. Uh, a lot of Sir Walter Scott, mm. Ivanhoe, uh, Waverly, worth reading. Now, this, this of course, aren't ancient epic tales, but they're good. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry to say that the English might be a little hard for a lot of our modern folk. Yeah. Uh, all I can say is 
use the dictionary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, unfortunately, our, our spirit of education today is such that if a kid goes into first grade, they won't teach him the alphabet because after all, he doesn't know it. So why would you want to teach him it? Because mm -hmm. like he doesn't know it and stuff. Yeah. So why would you teach him something he doesn't know? Yeah, that's the way they, they do things. So yeah. I would definitely um, tackle these harder to read things with a dictionary. There's nothing wrong with improving your knowledge. That's right. Very virtuous there. Yeah. It's because I've often had people say, you know, when I've recommended an old, older novels and stuff, and they say, well, uh, you know, I've looked at it it's so hard to read. Great. Get a dictionary. Yeah. Expand your words. You've, you're, you're the victim of an educational system that uh, is garbage. You don't have to stay ignorant, though, just because you were made that way. I mean, if I had been raised on, uh, on McDonald's, no reason why I can't explore Julia Child later. You know, it takes more work, I'll tell you That's that. Right. That's right. But, <laughs> you know, and if, if, uh, if, on the other hand, I don't do that, I mustn't complain about the people who kept feeding me at McDonald's. Yeah. If I don't have a problem with it, great. Just shut up and enjoy what I got. Anyhow, uh, so I'd say, Walter, Sir Walter Scott, uh, the stories of El Cid and Don Quixote, you know, Don even Quixote. though. Yeah, Cervantes, yeah. Cervantes is Don Quixote. Uh, even though it's kind of a burlesque of chivalry in a way, it's this kind of a zinger because that's not how it ends. Hmm. He does achieve a quest at the end. And of course, Cervantes himself was a veteran of Lepanto, which was as chivalric a, uh, an occurrence as you're going to have. So he was forced face to face with keeping chivalric ideals in a world that had turned on them. And let me see. Well, I should read a lot of Chesterton's uh, stuff. Lepanto, The Ballad of the White Horse, that kind of stuff. A lot of Bellick's poetry. Um, what I'm not hearing is movies such as The First Night or Excalibur. Or, yeah. First Night <laughs> was one of the worst pictures I've seen in my life, <laughs> as far as Othriana yeah. goes. Uh, Excalibur actually... Is if you've got a, ba a background in the in, in the stories already, yeah, uh, Excalibur isn't really all that bad. It's got some bad. bits that are yeah. really quite good, and you know another um, another one which was eh, in a lot of ways, but still had some moments was uh, Sword of the Valiant, which was a, a retelling of uh, of. Uh, Sir Gawain of the Green Knight, mm -hmm. especially the opening with uh, Sir, Sir uh, uh, what's his name, Sean Connery as the Green Knight. I mean, <laughs> it is an incredible performance. Even if you don't watch the rest of the film, which is, you know, the rest of the film is all right. It's, yeah. But if you just watch Sean Connery's, or I guess it was Sir Sean Connery when he died, yeah, if you just true. watch his uh, opening bits there at the Christmas feast 
uh, with uh, Trevor Howard as King Alpha. It's it's it really is good. Although I, I've often wondered if uh, I'm the only one who, who notices that the Green Knight often looks just like the Ghost of Christmas Present <laughs> in uh, in uh, Christmas Carol. Carol. Oh, and I've God. often wondered, and I, I don't know that there was, but I've often wondered if there wasn't a connection. Um, I really don't know. Yeah. But considering how many artists made the two look virtually identical, yeah. it does make me wonder. Yes. Anyhow, um, I, I will not shock you. I would recommend, uh, believe it or not, E.B. White's uh, modern version uh, the Once and Future King. Yeah, the Once and Future King. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a, a burlesque of it, but you know, it's not bad. Um, you can take a pass on the Mists of Avalon, so don't feel okay. the need to read that. But I will say, read Lord of the Rings. And that, simply because he takes a lot of the chivalric motifs and reworks them in a, a modern way, but don't read it unless you've read this other stuff before some of it. Um, so I, I say this, I mean, mind you, if you've already read Lord of the Rings, that's great. That's fine. But remember that Tolkien's internal worldview was built through reading this kind of stuff. Beowulf. Beowulf. There's another one. Beowulf. I mean, uh, later on, read Chaucer, you know, the Canterbury Tales, especially, and this is where people fail, uh, where the Edumacator people fail. They read all the tales except the Parsons tale. And that's a mistake. Uh, usually in most modern versions, it's encapsulated into a, a short explanation that it's, you know, just talks about the seven deadly sins, about a paragraph. There's a lot more to it. It's very rich. And a lot of the themes that he's touched on in the other tales, the answers, as it were, in the Parsons tale. But of course, he, he answers that as a Catholic would, either in the 15th century or today, mm. which is probably why uh, it's not too popular. He, uh, he speaks, you know, the, it's interesting in looking at Chaucer, his knight is a great, a very, a very perfect gentle knight, mm. a very perfect gentle knight. And it's, it's interesting. Remember I told you there were the three estates. Yeah. Well, in Canterbury Tales, the three estates are represented by a number of different people. But only three of them are admirable. The rest are, to a greater or lesser degree, schmucks of different kinds. Mm -hmm. Very human. But the knight, the Franklin, and the parson are the good nobleman, the good commoner, and the good priest. Mm -hmm. And in those three, Chaucer shows that Catholic perfection can be found in your state of life, whatever it may be. Hmm. Despite the fact that everybody around you of the same standing or the others, or the other two is a boob, 
you can do it if you wish. Yeah. But it all falls back on you. So I would definitely put in Canterbury Tales. Um, and Pierce Plowman, I kind of like, so I'll just throw that out there. Good. Good. It's a comprehensive uh, so, list. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, read all that stuff, and you'll and you'll know stuff and stuff, you know, and like, because <laughs> like, happy, I mean, yeah, it's stuff, you know, for sure, because <laughs> like you'll be, I mean, because like you know, and it's yeah, real deep. <laughs> Will you be woke at the end of it? <laughs> Will you be what at the end of it? Will you be woke? And uh, I don't think so. Whatever the opposite of woke is, <laughs> probably deep and. Deeper than something. I I uh, know the the wokery. Golly, they, you know it's the opposite of literate. I guess is woke. There's woke and there's literate, or woke yeah. and intelligent, or woke and not brain dead. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, well, I, was, there's I, nothing wrong with accepting. Couldn't said it better myself. Are. That's right. <laughs> Look, I don't believe in in projecting onto others what I think they should be. I believe in accepting them for what they are. You know, if someone wants to be a ridiculous moron, I honor, I celebrate his choice. I do. And I, mind you, if he comes at me with a, with a baseball bat, I hope I've got something to smack that's back right. at him. Right. Uh, but that's just self-defense. That's got nothing to do with how I feel about him as a person. Now, I don't want to open a, a completely new, I mean, we could probably talk about this just for a podcast. Yeah. But just listening to you talk about all this, I mean, this is just one uh, brief introduction to a very rich topic. And we've talked for a long time about this. But, you know, European history is so rich and beautiful and complex and yet you see so much self-loathing and so much uh, eagerness to throw chivalry and many other things that are equally wonderful in the trash and just yeah. move on into some uncharted future. Uh, I mean, in, a, in, the, in the briefest way possible, because I, like I said, this could be an entire podcast, but, but what is like, why are we rejecting this incredible heritage that we have? in favor of slogans and social media posts because we're ruled by worthless schmucks mm. <laughs> yeah i mean that's our our masters our, our elites our owners our lords our scum and i mean that in a nice way of course uh but they're worthless they're they're let, let me put it this way a little bit of self-revelation here if you like when I was a child, I thought as a child, well, all right, that's a whole other deal. But when I was a child, say about 12 years old, um, the Supreme Court of my country, using the magic glasses once given by the angel moron to Joseph Smith, found <laughs> a right to murder your baby in the Constitution, right where the founding fathers in Philadelphia had put it. Now. I came to a terrible realization at that early age. I was ruled by evil men. Mm. There's only an evil person legalizes the murder of children. So I said to my father, dad, I said, I always called him dad because he was my father. Anyway, I said, dad, it looks to me 
I mean, it seems like we're ruled by evil men. And my father said, well, son, that's because we're ruled by evil men. I said, well, that's horrible. He said, yeah, it really is. I said, well, you don't seem too upset. I said, well, I know my history. Of course, my dad had been a tail gunner against the Japanese during World War II, so it was kind of hard to get him too, too worked up. But I said, uh, what does it mean? He said, well, son, you know, a lot of people who lived under evil regimes in the past, and doubtless many more shall in the future, and they managed to have decent lives for themselves. Please, God, you will too. Time went on. Jimmy Carter was president. And Jimmy, well, let me put it this way. Rulers, rulers are insane when the pictures in their heads of the way the world is are more real to them and more important to them than their own well-being. It was more important for the Nazis to uh, enforce their racial stuff on the Eastern Front than it was to beat the Soviets. That's called being insane, if you're a leader. So it was the night Jimmy Carter, when uh, Brezhnev invaded Afghanistan, and Jimmy Carter got up on television and said, Leonid lied to me. I realized that our leadership, not just Jimmy, were in that way very specific to leaders. Well, yeah, they were evil, but now they were also insane in that very particular sense. Well, the years go by, and I thought, oh, you know, evil and insane, it's unpleasant, I'd rather or otherwise, but, and of course, academia continued ever more and more and more to resemble the masters of society and to produce products like themselves. Well, and many of whom entered the ranks of our elite. So then under President Obama, I came to another realization. Now they're evil. And yeah, yeah, they're insane. But they're also so stupid. Mm. Now, evil and insane, you can kind of work around and think about, figure out. But stupid is real hard. Because you can't predict it. You can't do anything with it except and when, when stupid is in charge of you, it gets really difficult to know what to do. Well, if I had doubts about my reading of the situation, uh, President uh, Biden cured me of them with the Kabul fiasco, where you saw our leadership's evil insanity and stupidity demonstrated for all to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Well, that is why in a sane society, even if it's based on, uh, shall we say, a narrative that's not entirely true, the last thing you do is attack the very bases, the very foundation of that society if you're in charge. Why? Because if you do that, it's like sitting on a, on a high branch in a tree and sawing it off while you're sitting there. 
you know, down will come baby moron and all, as the to uh, paraphrase Rocket by Baby. So there are a lot of reasons for this. The the, the secularization of our elites. They're, they're, as a result of that, they've become increasingly disconnected from reality and ever more prisoners of their own mind. And they, of course, have spread their poison through our educational system in various other ways. Media, of course. Um, and basically, there are only two ways any civilization can go in that, in that way. Uh, in that sort of situation, either uh, for whatever reason, a counter force develops, the interior health of the society pulls itself together and stops the rot at a certain moment mm. and pushes back, mm. or eventually the whole thing collapses and something new and better because more natural arises from that collapse. Uh, those are the choices ahead of us now. How long are they going to take? How soon? I don't know. Could be a long time. Could be very short. You know, we were 20 years in Afghanistan, which is a long time, and it ended in a week. Yeah. yeah. Who's to say? Revolutions are funny, because you never know when they start where they're going to end, and who's going to end up on top. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. If we get, as I fear, a strong man in this country in response to uh, the rot, will it be Franco or will it be Cromwell? Mm. Mm. I don't know. And everything will then become dependent on his personality. I mean, we're just thinking of chivalry and the military and all that. We have just told 20 years worth of veterans of the forever war that the deaths of their comrades and their own sacrifices were utterly in vain. Yes. This creates an added element of political stress that cannot at the moment be predicted in terms of what it will do. I, um, you know, I was 15 when Saigon fell. But the thing about the Vietnam War was that, number one, uh, we'd had it in our, in our uh, living rooms every night for years. And because it was the draft for most of it, everybody knew people who had gone. In this, in the forever war, because we've had a volunteer force, the burden has fallen primarily on what uh, Mrs. Clinton called the deplorables. Mm. I mean, the reason, people don't understand why uh, the Trumpster was keen on getting out of Iraq and, Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Well, that's very simple. The war was being fought by the children of his, uh, primarily speaking, of his base. And they're the ones he was interested in, not I mean, you don't see the children of media people and academics going into the army. <laughs> right. They're too good right. for that kind of thing. Right. They're too special. So I cannot tell you what all this is going to lead to, but it's very hard for me to think it's going to lead to anything wonderful. Mm -hmm. But there too, the spirit of chivalry becomes important 
Because knighthood arose. Knighthood arose as one civilization was dying. Yeah. And in response to the chaos that that death was unleashing. Mm -hmm. And just as that period brought out, eventually it made great saints. It also made great soldiers and great heroes. Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt that if such a fate awaits us, be it in the short term or the long term, uh, and be it sudden or gradual, yeah, not, neither, neither, either, or neither of which are possible. Um, please God, we'll be among the saints and heroes. Amen. Yeah, uh, that opportunity that's we, is here. It's why we need the spirit of chivalry, in hopes of being in that number. Called to be the knights of this time, yeah. Oh. Yes. I mean, I don't know if these are the the uh, end times, but they may well be the end times for what we've known. Mm -hmm. In other words, not the end of the world, but the end of our world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they could be the end of the world. You know, you you got to be ready for either possibility. Yeah. Always be flexible. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and I I I think that is a beautiful place to conclude is that yeah the the times that we live in are calling forth kind of a new spirit of chivalry of of yes. knighthood and and defensive of, of all that's good and true and beautiful in in our time definitely and what whatever remains of the old chivalry should be used in the foundation of the new whatever can be used yeah but remember Form is, form is important, but substance is more so. Yeah. Ideally, we should have both. Yeah. But, you know, mutatis mutandis, it's like a, uh, uh, like the difference between a six-course meal and a hamburger and fries. They both feed you, but what a difference. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, thank you, Charles, um, for being here and for just talking, you know, directly and mm -hmm. also uh, filling us with uh, with your knowledge and uh, expertise. It's just it's been very thought provoking and a blessing, I know, to uh, to us and hopefully to our listeners. And uh, yeah, and I think that is a good way to end. So we are called to be knights for our time, work on chivalry. Yep. And, and that. Uh, uh, the, uh, and don't forget one other thing about the knight. He tried never to be downhearted. Mm. Mm. And that's a very, very important thing as well. It's one reason for all the celebrating. Yeah. It may be uh, the end of the world, but it's still the Feast of the Holy Cross. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah. So Christmas Amen. is coming and all the feasts of autumn and winter, ladies and gentlemen. So just... <laughs> Get, get ready for them. Uh, also, I should mention one more thing. Please. Tomorrow, Saturday, uh, Off the Menu goes back into production. So our, our long six-week uh, hiatus is over. My interlocutor is back from his, uh, from his honeymoon. I'm back oh, from my boat tour. So the moon is in the seventh house. Jupiter's alive. <laughs> oh, forget it. <laughs> Why'd you bring that uh, stuff up anyway? I don't want to hear about all that. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. So um, we're greatly appreciative. And as we like to end every episode, Sam, 
Be a man, be a saint.